is an Odyssey original. This is a special edition of KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. War in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin did it. The invasions of Ukraine started. It was quick and fierce as Russians hit cities and bases with airstrikes and shelling. Ukraine calling it a full-scale war. Russia now in control of the Chernobyl nuclear site. And there is talk that Ukraine's capital, Kiev, could fall soon. President Biden hitting back at Putin, not with military might, but economic power in the form of more sanctions meant to hurt big banks and financing for the Russian military. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. So we will go in depth into the invasion of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin may have hinted at using nuclear weapons if any outside military forces get in his way in Ukraine. Also, do we need to worry even more now about a rash of cyber attacks on businesses and governments? Will Russia respond to the new sanctions with cyber warfare and the invasion already having economic fallout? Gas prices here up again. We start our special in-depth show on the Russian invasion of Ukraine with CBS News reporter Mary Lushna, who is in Russia right now near the Ukrainian border. Mary, thanks for being with us. Uh, so you're close to uh, Ukraine, closer certainly than we are. Uh, what is happening from your vantage point and what kind of reaction are you able to get? Well, Ukraine has been attacked from multiple sides. Uh, where I am right now in Belgrade, this is the particular hotspot because uh, a lot of um, salvo shots were shot from this area towards Ukraine and that could be heard in the city of Kharkiv. That is just about 40 miles away from me. Um, Ukraine was also attacked from Belarus and from Crimea. So it's definitely a full-scale attack on Ukrainian territory. Um, The reaction here among Russians, at least, you know, it's been quite a dark day for them as well, because I think very few people actually expected Vladimir Putin to go through with this. And the most kind of common word I heard today from Russians is shame. A lot of people feel really ashamed and really frightened by the actions that the government has taken today. In terms of, and this is a fog of war question, we'll have to see what happens, but in terms of actual resistance, actual conflict, how much do we know that there has been or hasn't been? We know some helicopters have gone down. We have reports of some deaths, but was a lot of this bombardment just to kind of cripple the Ukrainian military before there could even be a, a, you know, a fight to put up? Well, Russian Defense Ministry claimed uh, just recently that they've destroyed uh, at least like 80 um, Ukrainian targets and took down, um, I think, five planes of the Ukrainian Air Force. Um, but it's quite difficult to make up which um, what of these claims are actually true, because a lot of it, it seems like both sides have had some losses, but they're not exactly admitting how many. Although Russian uh, Ukrainian officials have said that over 50 people have died as the result of today's attacks. Um, Ukrainian military is definitely much smaller than the Russian one and less experienced in combat because we all know that Russia participated in various conflicts in the past decade. We know the 2014 annexation of Crimea, another territory that Ukraine lost because of Russia and also its involvement in Syria. So it definitely has a lot of strategic advantages, but it seems like Ukrainians are putting up a fight. Um, President Zelensky said that, you know, anyone who is willing to fight for Ukraine, they will be uh, getting weapons if they want to. And it seems like the nation is very united. 
um, on this day. You know, Mary, we we talk about the possibility, maybe the eventuality of the Russians uh, taking control of the capital, Kiev. In point of fact, uh, if you kind of help paint a picture of the uh, lay of the land there, uh, aren't the Russians now pretty close, like within maybe 20 miles of the capital? That's true. We've seen reports and footage of Russian troops um, and airstrikes on the uh, Kiev uh, areas, not exactly in the capital, but like in the the suburbs around it. So it seems like they're advancing pretty fast. And it's obviously very concerning whether uh, Putin is pursuing any sort of, uh, you know, a coup or regime change or trying to install a different leader in uh, Kiev. So, you know, it's definitely very concerning in the next few days. I think will be very decisive on just how far Russia will go into Ukraine. How much of what the Western leaders are saying is making it into Russian media? And if it is making it with what kind of uh, perspective is it being viewed? I think a lot of people here are responding to the sanctions and to the economic uh, losses that Russia will endure in the next few weeks, months, and maybe years, because the U.S. and the U.K. and the U.S. are announcing multiple sanctions hitting Russian state banks, hitting Russian businesses. Um, you know, the Russian stock exchange today fell, you know, just a record amount, and uh, Russian government banks are losing um, stock. It's, you know, it's just crazy economically what's happening here. Um, so they are definitely responding to these measures. I don't think Vladimir Putin is going to address the international condemnation anytime soon, but he uh, called a meeting with Russian oligarchs and Russian businesses today to basically tell them that he was forced to do it and there was no other choice. But there's definitely a lot of um, worry among these business leaders, just what's going to happen, whether it's whether it was all worth it. CBS News reporter Mary Alushna, who's in Russia right now near the Ukrainian border. Mary, thanks. And now we're going to go to Moscow to CBS News reporter Felix Light. Felix, thanks for being back with us. I saw some uh, pictures uh, not too long ago of what appeared to be uh, pretty large protests in uh, Moscow. I don't know if it was Red Square or not, but it was. Uh, it seemed to be in central Moscow. Uh, so uh, is that the reaction and how unusual is that in a Russia that is clearly now very tightly controlled by Vladimir Putin. Well, good evening. Yeah, there were some protests uh, tonight in Moscow and across a number of other cities. You know, we saw a sort of about 2,000 people arrested, which is a, you know, these are not uh, not massive protests, but they're not insubstantial. You've got to remember that protesting itself is such a risky business in Russia these days that uh, sort of it does imply perhaps that there is a, a wider sort of appetite to come out and protest. I think generally, you know, there's definitely not a consensus behind this war in Russia. You know, a lot of people are sort of very split. There's sort of maybe half the population that are broadly supportive and then another half that's sort of fairly opposed to what's going on. So this is a very controversial move in Russia. And what we really saw tonight with these protests kind of underlines that, if anything. We were hearing in our last segment um, from Mary Lucina also in Russia that, that she was finding that people were actually surprised that it did happen, that uh, kind of like we had been hearing from, from Ukrainians, that, that they didn't actually think that Putin was going to do it. Have you found that as well when, when you've been talking to people that, oh, they thought it, it was some sort of bluff or, or there would be some sort of compromise or something that the invasion actually wouldn't take place? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think most people are absolutely astonished and sort of 
frankly mortified that this this has happened you know uh and i think you know from what we've we've sort of heard this is very much true of people who are sort of in the government as well you know i think this was a, a, a decision that putin kept very tightly to himself uh and sort of a lot of people are really astonished that he actually went for it you know the war between Russia and Ukraine is almost like war between the US and Canada, right? These are two countries that are extraordinarily sort of close culturally and historically. And, and for many people, they just almost can't get their heads around the idea that Ukraine and Russia could go to war. And so, you know, there's, there's an enormous amount of discontent over this decision here in Russia, I think. But if you uh, sort of analyze and pick apart, and I'm sure you have, uh, Vladimir Putin's speech the other day, uh, it it does seem as if his ambitions to sort of recreate, uh, in a geographical sense, the former Soviet Union would therefore extend, by definition, beyond Ukraine and Belarus. Uh, Well, maybe. You know, his speech on Monday night was actually very closely sort of... uh, focused on Ukraine. You know, Ukraine is, is has always had this kind of special place in the kind of the Russian uh, political sort of imagination. You know, Kiev is sort of seen as the first Russian city. It's very much where sort of Russia, the idea of Russia started. And so for a lot of Russians, sort of Russia without Ukraine is almost unthinkable, you know. So I think Putin's ambitions are sort of, A, very specifically about Ukraine, because he's, I think, very personally, emotionally invested in the, 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 the question of Ukraine, extremely, actually. Uh, and maybe as well to Belarus, you know, these are sort of the, the core sort of uh, Slavic and Orthodox uh, heart of the old Soviet Union. So I think, you know, for now, his priorities appear focused on this, sort of reconstituting this part of the old Soviet Union, as opposed to the other bits of it. Is there any thought about what the end game is, if it can even be determined? I mean, you can take the country, but can you hold the country? And he says, you know, this is limited and all that, but people don't believe him. But I mean, what, install a government that's closer to Russia like there was the, the first time around before they, they threw them out? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, what I would say is that uh, the U.S. intelligence sort of uh, predictions of when the invasion would happen turned out to be extremely accurate. And you'll remember as well that the U.S. intelligence uh, was saying that sort of Russia had found sort of a, or wanted to sort of put a, pu- a puppet government in there. It wanted to sort of round up and arrest anyone who'd supported the previous government. So I think we probably have to take those warnings really quite seriously now that uh, other things that the intelligence community said turned out to be basically spot on. Uh, though I do think, you know, this is going to be a huge undertaking. I think we we can only now begin to grapple with how big a sort of a geopolitical moment this is for sort of Europe and the West. You know, uh, Ukraine is not going to go down uh, without a fight. And if and when it does go down, it will put up resistance to the Russians. You know, we're, uh, you, one almost gets the sense that uh, Putin had convinced himself that Ukrainian uh, soldiers were just handed their arms as they came <laughs> on the border. But we're seeing enormous resistance in Kiev and in other cities. And I think this could continue for the long term. And uh, Ukraine is going to become a, an, an ulcer on, uh, for Russia, I think. Do Russians that you talk with privately at least uh, express concern about uh, Vladimir Putin's mental state? Um, <laughs> well, this has been uh, something for a long time that people have said. I mean, n- not in terms of, you know, clinical insanity, should we say, but people, I think, do imagine that this is a guy who's been in power for 22 years, and that does... 
that kind of that that degree of untrammeled absolute power probably does do something to your psyche and so i think people do worry about that you know people have started calling him the grandfather in the bunker you know grandpa in the bunker <laughs> yeah. you know the guy who sort of sat away isolated from the world you know dreaming of of ukraine and dreaming of imperial conquest you know he's there is a sense in which he's sort of a little bit out of touch and i and i do think that even though one sees that sort of you know a part of the Russian population supports this kind of move and he's got very strong control over the elite. There's no particular sort of mobilization in, in support of this war. We saw these protests against the war today, very spontaneous, very sort of out of thin air. There's no attempt to sort of, you know, whip people up into a patriotic frenzy and get them out protesting on the streets for this. It's 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 very much a sense in which this is Putin's personal thing and and, and the, the will of the Russian people is, is very much secondary to that. CBS News reporter Felix Lights in Moscow. Interesting the way he phrased that Putin's personal thing. Yeah. A little uh, bit out of touch. Yeah. A, a, a war, little bit. A yeah. war. Mm. Biggest, My uh, personal war. Yeah. Biggest war in Europe since 1939 in terms of uh, yeah. land invasion. But because his personal of one guy. Thing. Coming up, Vladimir Putin may have threatened to use nuclear weapons, and the invasion is already impacting gas prices in Southern California. Could it get even worse? Right now, the president ordering more sanctions. This time, four major banks being targeted. Also says the U.S. is deploying more troops to Germany to boost NATO. Pam Falk, foreign affairs analyst for CBS at the U.N. right now. Pam, thanks for being with us. So um, I guess one of the big questions now, right, is are these uh, new sanctions going to have enough teeth to do something? Because whatever we were doing before, it didn't stop them. Well, it's uh, good to talk to you both, Mike and Charles. It's, um, a, it's, it's still to tell. The sanctions take time, but uh, there are a lot, quite a few sanctions uh, that weren't put into effect, and that's what has people asking the question, why was this swift banking system not put in? Uh, the U.S. slapped a number of sanctions on the elite individuals. It's basically the Russian oligarchs. Um, it's Putin's uh, moneyed class. And so part of the question is, will they have a, an impact on them? But the SWIFT banking system uh, was something that people really felt would have an impact on them. It may be the European allies that feel like it will hurt them more than it hurts Putin, but he didn't put it in yet. He said some of the sanctions, which are on banks and on individuals, on uh, every asset will be frozen on two financial institutions. Um, every uh, you, every uh, one of four, I mean, everyone in four of Russia's largest banks. Uh, so there are quite a few. We'll see if it works. I mean, clearly the Ukrainians wanted this to happen before the invasion. And people are starting to see bombing around Kiev and, and worried that this is the beginning of a 2014 event. Yeah. And, and, and let me just circle back a little bit. You mentioned uh, SWIFT banking system so that people understand. This is a, a sort of international consortium that was uh, founded, I think, in the 70s that in effect allows banks, major banks from all over the world to kind of interact with one another, right? So right. If, a, if a country, say Russia, were cut off from it, that would be a major problem for that country. Yes, exactly. And um, it's sort of hard to say why. I mean, uh, reporters pressed Biden at the, at the White House today, but um, he then said, look, if when you go through, and I'm starting to go through it, it's quite a list of all the sanctions that go went into place. 
he said it will cover more than than the SWIFT banking uh, system sanctions, but he also said that still to that still may come. So it was a little bit of a fudge. It sounds like he may still put it in. The other one is he didn't put it put sanctions on on Putin himself. And uh, everyone feels like, look, we assume Putin, uh, back from the 1990s, may have put his money in un, under the pillow and be away from it, uh, not affected by any sanctions. But it still makes it much harder for him to function and travel and do everything else. And so um, why not? Why not? If not now, when? Yeah. Uh, but he that that he's holding that one back. So we'll see. I mean, part of it is that the uh, take, for example, the U.N. Secretary General today said this is terrible. He came to the stakeout uh, unexpectedly and then said, look, it's not irreversible. So uh, I think there's somewhat of a, it may be, real or maybe naive, but uh, hope that he doesn't go so far as to, t- to put in a puppet government and and basically take over all of you. Yeah, the, the whole country. Uh, be- yeah. Before we run out of time, uh, you cover the UN, and, and look, yeah. a lot of people still believe in, in the mission, but last night, did it seem weak or to the criticism of it weaker than normal because literally as the invasion is starting, there's a Security Council meeting that Russia is chairing, and then they just shut it down. They said, all right, we're done here, folks. Bye. Yeah, I mean, it was very out of body because it started, it was called because people were expecting the the invasion to happen at 9 p.m. at night. And it started when people were still sort of hopeful that things would turn around. The U.S. ambassador said, look, you know, stop it now. It was sort of a take down that wall moment um, for a lot of countries, U.K. and U.S., but then in the middle of it, all of a sudden the news came, literally flashed on people's phones, and the Ukrainian ambassador who told me a few weeks ago that Putin just wants to reassemble the Soviet Union, uh, he held up his phone, and he, everyone looked sort of shell-shocked. What did they come out? They can't come out with anything because Russia has a veto. Now, tomorrow you will see a U.N. resolution, and the U.S. and U.K. and France, they're all sponsoring it so that the message gets out that the world is united, but Russia will veto it. Then they'll go to the General Assembly with it. But the bottom line answer to your question is the U.N. has a bully pulpit right now because Russia can veto anything. Pam Falk, Foreign Affairs Analyst for CBS, uh, there at the U.N. right now. Pam, thanks. You're listening to a special edition of KNX In-Depth, The Russian Invasion of Ukraine with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russia's assaults was swift to start. Airstrikes hit cities and military bases. Troops even took control of the Chernobyl nuclear site. There's talk that Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, could fall soon. With us is CBS military analyst Jeff McCausland. Jeff, thanks for being uh, with us. From a military point of view, uh, how have the Russians executed this? Well, I think it's been mixed. And first of all, it's clear based on the fact that they've conducted missile, rocket, cruise missile, and, and, and bombing attacks against targets across the entirety of the Ukraine territory, that their military objective is to take control of the entire country and not just this tiny piece of Ukraine there in the east and these two so-called separatist provinces. <clears throat> so that means that they furthermore are planning on taking the capital, basically decapitating the government and installing a new government in Kiev that obviously will be much more amenable to whatever direction Vladimir Putin decides to dictate. That being said, 
the, the ground operation does not seem to be moving as rapidly as I initially anticipated following that rather significant um, air and missile attack, which we would call preparation of the battlefield. There is supposedly fighting going on around Kharkiv, which is a very large city in eastern Ukraine of about one and a half million. And there has been reports of airborne and heliborne forces seizing an airfield outside of Kiev. Whether they can continue to hold that, they, the Russians, following a Ukrainian counterattack remains to be seen. And then the attack from the north. But I would have thought they would have moved more quickly than they have so far on the ground. Those next few hours and days may, may show that they're doing far better. Uh, Ukrainian forces seem to be fighting pretty well uh, and holding up their end of the bargain in terms of resistance. But once again, from the Russian standpoint, since their goal now is the entire country and taking down the government, while they may have enough troops to defeat the Ukrainian army, I'm still skeptical they got enough troops to occupy Ukraine the size of Texas, right. 40 million people. Yeah, let's talk about that part. I mean, you can easily probably take care of the, the, the places in between cities, the land, but can you hold all these cities? I mean, you would need, what, three, four times as many actual soldiers to, to go up against the, the population of Ukraine. So what's the end game? What's the goal here? That's the question that keeps getting asked, right? Because you can't hold on to that whole country forever. Well, I think he may have made some rather fatal assumptions. I think he may have made an assumption that NATO unity would fail and he'd be able to drive fissures for the alliance with, you know, very little objections and perhaps um, minimum amount of economic sanctions for a short period of time. That does not turn out to be true. And, in fact, if his concern was more NATO forces on his territory, which he said at the onset of this crisis was his real worry, that's exactly what he's going to get. I think he also, secondly, I think he underestimated the Ukrainians. I think he thought this was the same Ukrainian military we faced and ran over pretty quickly in 2014. Well, they're far better in 2022 than they were then. They're willing to fight. And as you rightly point out, you start getting those large cities, you've got a couple of options. One, you can try to encircle them and hopefully get the leadership to surrender peacefully. Or you can move in. But once you move in, even with heavy armored forces, well, you lose a lot of advantages on heavy armor in rather narrow streets where they've got to move in columns, and you can start getting fired upon with anti-tank weapons coming down from buildings and the like. And the Russians have been through this once in Grozny and Chechnya back in the 1990s and suffered a pretty catastrophic defeat at the hands of the Chechen rebels. So uh, let, let's presume uh, he ends up taking uh, all of Ukraine, including the, the capital, and let's also uh, assume that he, he puts in a government more to his liking. But the Ukrainian people kicked out uh, not that long ago right. a, a government not to their liking, liking. So how would he expect, realistically, to keep that newly installed government in power? Yeah, that's that's a great question and one I've been pondering. I mean, Mr. Yanukovych was put out by the Ukrainian people, and why Mr. Putin thinks he could put in a puppet government and uh, and have that government sustain itself, absent again a large-scale Russian troop presence throughout the entirety of the country, which will tie down hundreds of thousands of Russian troops for an endless period of time. Otherwise, as soon as you leave, well, frankly, that guy's going to be hanging from a lamppost someplace. And so that's not exactly what I think his objective is. And I think he's going to get sucked into a longer and longer uh, counterinsurgency war uh, in Ukraine, that we will continue to provide military assistance to the Ukrainians in that particular regard. Uh, and this will go on for an extended period of time. Before we run, Remember, they lost 15,000 soldiers fighting insurgency in Afghanistan, which many people believe 
accelerated the demise of the Soviet Union. Very quickly, I'm afraid, because we'll run out of time. Why do you think, from a strategic point of view, the Russians seized the old Chernobyl nuclear power plant? Yeah, the main reason is it's, it lies on one of the main avenues going from Belarus to the capital, Kiev. And if you want to get to Kiev in a hurry, you've got to kind of pass through that particular area. So that's the best answer I can give to that. But there's a worry. There are four uh, nuclear facilities in the Ukraine, two in the south and two in the north uh, western part of the country. And that's a real concern if you had a lot of fighting around one of those or that containment facility there at the Chernobyl disaster facility, then you could have a massive radiation uh, outbreak, which obviously makes this horrible situation just that much worse. CBS military analyst Jeff McCausland. Jeff, thanks. Vladimir Putin in in his speech about the invasion says the Russian response to outside forces that try to stop Russia will be, and I'm quoting now, immediate and lead to the consequences you have never seen in history. Some analysts say that is an implicit threat to use nuclear weapons. Are we moving closer to that danger point? Daryl Kimball, executive director of the Arms Control Association with us. Daryl, thank you. So how do you read that? I would hope that everyone still understands mutually assured destruction, that, you know, no one can ever use these things because then we're into real scary territory. Indeed, uh, there are no winners in a nuclear war and, and, and both Vladimir Putin and President Biden understand that uh, neither side wants to get into a nuclear exchange, but uh, with Russia's uh, premeditated uh, and massive invasion of Ukraine, you know, U.S. and NATO forces are going to be in in close proximity to Russian forces. Tensions are high, and I would say, you know, the risk of miscalculation over the next few hours and days and maybe weeks uh, is going to be very high. And so both sides need to be uh, very prudent um, uh, not to interfere uh, or come into to, to, to direct contact. And Putin's uh, warning that you just read from his, um, his diatribe um, from Monday night when he announced his decision to attack Ukraine. It is a, uh, it's not an implicit nuclear threat. It is a nuclear threat against anyone who might try to interfere with what he's, uh, what he's doing in Ukraine. And it's uh, just another um, action, another statement um, by Putin that just goes beyond the pale. I mean, we've heard the international condemnation. That's just one of several things that he's done uh, in the last few hours that, um, uh, it just violates um, all of the, the, the international norms of behavior that, that leaders uh, need to, to stand up to and why he's, he's going to be held accountable. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, if, if one operates under the presumption that rational leaders don't want to even, even uh, you know, uh, hint at nuclear weapons being used because that would certainly not be a good development for the countries involved in the entire world, what purpose would he have to say that? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, rational uh, behavior does not always equate with um, um, prudent behavior. I mean, we know that Vladimir Putin is willing to take risks, um, and he is he's taking an extremely risky act, uh, action. In, Ukraine, in, in invading Ukraine. Um, and uh, he is trying to say that if the United States or NATO allies 
uh, try to interfere, and he's not clear about what he means there, uh, he might be willing to uh, employ extreme means to uh, thwart that. And uh, it's well known that Russia has a large arsenal like the United States of nuclear weapons. Um, so even if he doesn't want to employ nuclear weapons, he is uh, of the mind right now, and this is what is worrisome, uh, to, to, to threaten that, that possibility if anybody interferes with his actions. Has he also kind of, by doing this, flipped deterrence on its head a bit? Because the conventional thinking, right, was let's not get into shooting wars because they escalate. And if you have nuclear powers involved, escalation is going to lead to somebody using a nuke. Um, but he's saying, hey, I have nukes. You know that. So I'm going to go and do what I want in this country that doesn't have them. So the rest of you sit out because I'm prepared to use them. Don't come in here. That's it's he's turned it all around. It, there are shields uh, now. Yes, you're, this is a very, very good point. And uh, a number of people were, are, are pointing this out. I mean, you know, it's often thought that nuclear weapons provide um, a nation, the United States, Russia, with a great deal of strength and security. Um, you know, the reality is that these weapons, you know, cannot be used unless you're willing to uh, bring about your own self-destruction. Uh, but in this case, what Putin is doing is he is, um, you know, using the uh, the threat of nuclear escalation to uh, perform these this this so-called special military operation, um, and our U.S. nuclear arsenal, NATO's uh, small force, which we actually own, but it's based in in Europe, uh, is is useless um, unless we're willing to uh, risk, um, you know, California. Uh, Los Angeles uh, in exchange for uh, Moscow or, or Kiev or, or another city. So, um, you know, this, this looking forward, though, I think what this reminds us all is that, um, you know, major powers need to uh, behave far more responsibly. We have uh, a risk of nuclear weapons use beneath the surface, um, and we need to find ways, despite uh, the fact that that Russia and Putin in particular is an outlaw actor, we need to find ways to reduce the risks of nuclear use. And to, the, the starting point is not to threaten uh, nuclear weapons um, against other countries, as Putin has, has, has done in recent days. Russia has tactical nukes. We don't, do we? So just a, a, a brief uh, tutorial on who has what. Um, you know, the United States and Russia each have about 4,000 nuclear weapons, but um, of that total, uh, each has about 1,400 warheads on long-range missiles and bombers um, that can be delivered uh, intercontinental distances uh, within about 20 minutes of a launch order by either president. And then there are shorter-range so-called tactical nuclear bombs um, the United States has about 200 and about 160 of these are uh, in five NATO bases in Europe. Um, they're airdropped bombs. Russia has um, a approximately 1,000 tactical nuclear bombs. They are held in, in centralized storage areas in Russia, uh, but they can be delivered on fighter bombers and shorter range missile systems too. Now, to our knowledge, Russia has not 
move their tactical nuclear weapons uh, out of storage facilities. They have overwhelming conventional uh, military superiority vis-a-vis Ukraine. Um, but the, the risk of nuclear use today is generally thought to uh, be highest in a, in a scenario in which U.S. And, and NATO forces come into direct conflict with Russia. And if one side uh, is losing the conventional war, uh, then the other might resort to the use of short-range uh, so-called battlefield nuclear weapons, which can, of course, destroy a city. These are not small weapons uh, in order to uh, tip the balance back in their favor. But the, the danger is that a nuclear exchange is not likely going to be limited to you know, one, one nuclear detonation by one country with the other nuclear-armed country not responding. It would very likely uh, lead to um, a tit-for-tat escalation all the way up uh, the, the escalatory ladder, and it might involve the exchange of nuclear weapons um, between Russia and the United States itself. So that's, that's what Russia has, what the United States has, and that's one of the reasons why I think President Biden has been wise to say the United States military is not going to become directly involved uh, in pushing back Putin's invasion in Ukraine, uh, however horrible it is. All right, Daryl Kimball, Executive Director of the Arms Control Association. More of this uh, special edition of In-Depths to come. This is KNX In-Depth, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The topic, Mike Simpson, Charles Feldman. If a new Cold War starts, most of the fighting could be done through the Internet. Cyber attacks, senior FBI official warning businesses and local governments about the possibility of ransomware attacks. So could Russia retaliate to the sanctions by ordering these attacks? Michael Zweibach is a cybersecurity expert, attorney, and former federal prosecutor, served as a principal advisor to the U.S. Attorney General's Advisory Committee on Cyber Crime. Mike, uh, Michael, thanks for being uh, with us. So, you know, there used to be a time when this country would uh, sort of, in a very cocky way, say, well, things that happen overseas don't really impact us because, you know, we got oceans on both sides of the, of the U.S. And, and we're pretty safe here. But because of the Internet, that's not really true now, is it? No, it's not. <clears throat> and certainly in the past, uh, Russia has already utilized ransomware and other malicious uh, software in order to probe uh, very important financial targets, uh, electrical grids, and other things that are extremely important to everyday Americans that, uh, and that impact our lives. So how do you think this looks as it um, plays out if it does? We put the sanctions on them. They're probably going to retaliate. And, and look, it's, it's, is it open season over there? Because we were saying yesterday on the show, this is a, uh, I think, quote unquote, permissive environments for hackers, meaning nothing's going to happen to them so they can just have at it. Well, the question is, is it going to be any worse than it already is? I mean, we, we uh, uh, in the United States, in the financial services sector uh, and others have already over the last couple of years faced a huge proliferation in ransomware types of attacks, things that have debilitated uh, shipping companies, law firms, banks, other things like that. And the question is, is it going to really be worse or is it just going to continue to be business as usual? We asked, uh, I think it was yesterday on the show, somebody, are we prepared as a country, businesses, government, 
uh, for the potential of a of a really concerted cyber attack from an entity like Russia? And the answer we got was a pretty flat and pretty emphatic no. Do you agree? I completely agree. And uh, how unfortunate that we really are in that position. And the problem has been is that it's the private sector, the private businesses that are really the ones that are on the front line, the front battlefield lines of dealing with uh, something that has become such a national security instrument um, in the form of ransomware proliferation and other things by military arms of the uh, of the of the Soviet uh, military machine. So there's the business side of the money and the ransomwares. And there's also the government infrastructure or some utilities like power grids and government sites. I mean, have they been getting ready to hit those if they want to? And also, are we ready to hit back? I mean, if they've been probing all of our stuff, I would hope that that we're ready to flip the switch on them if that came to pass. And we mentioned the whole new Cold War idea being a, a cyber war. Well, uh, they've been doing it already. They've they've been probing our um, our our you know utility grids to determine where where vulnerabilities are. It's it's something that's been happening over the last five years. The the Russians fundamentally believe uh, as a, as a doctrine that cyber is an offensive capability. We have viewed it entirely differently, not as an offensive capability. Uh, but as something that is a defensive, um, you know, a, a more of a defensive variety, we do have offensive capabilities, uh, but we don't utilize it to the extent that they do. So if, if that is, in fact, our mindset, is it is it sort of a shame on us? It's a shame on us. It's uh, inadequacy in our legal regimes that, uh, you know, that that place us at uh in a position of vulnerability if in fact a private entity is impacted the the russians view the cyber battlefield as three-dimensional chess they always have and they don't have a problem uh from a fundamental standpoint from a legal standpoint because there's no real retribution in damaging very specific private portions of the u.s economy Michael Zweibach, cybersecurity expert, attorney, former federal prosecutor, was an advisor to the Attorney General's Advisory Committee on Cybercrime. The economic fallout from the invasion already beginning. Gas prices here in Southern California are up again, and there's concern the average prices could actually hit $5 a gallon. No slowdown in sight. Oil prices topping $105 a barrel earlier today before going back down. Highest level since 2014. With us, David Holtz, president of the Consumer Energy Alliance, follows oil, gas, and energy prices. David, thanks for being here. So, uh, yeah, as we mentioned multiple times now, this is not a uh, siloed world. We're interconnected. We're going to see these ripple effects, and uh, we're seeing it in the numbers. We absolutely are. This is a pretty serious situation, obviously, uh, Energy prices, oil prices uh, in particular, are a global commodity. Uh, the price of gasoline and diesel is is tied very closely to the price of oil. Uh, we were already seeing high oil prices and gasoline and diesel prices here in this country before the situation in the Ukraine. But now, as, as you mentioned in the lead up, uh, in California, we could expect $5 a gallon. Uh, throughout the rest of the country, we could expect $4 to $4.50 a gallon. Uh, and that 
is the point where people start making hard choices between a gallon of milk and a gallon of gasoline, and, and you're going to face a lot of pain. Do we also have to be careful that we don't get ripped off by oil companies? Because the gas that's at the gas station today uh, was bought at a certain price. So is there any real reason why that should go up, say, tomorrow? Well, you know, no, no, there isn't. No, you're going to see uh, responsiveness from uh, the gas companies. And a lot of these gas companies that sell gasoline are, are not necessarily tied to the major oil companies. A lot of them are independent. So they're all going to be competing with each other, trying to set prices that uh, doesn't uh, necessarily make them lose money, but also is pretty cost competitive with their guy, their other fellow gas station across the street. So there are things we can do as a nation now, uh, and we're working with the Biden administration now to make sure that we can do all we can to produce more oil and natural gas here at home. Uh, so we help put downward pressure on that price of gasoline and that barrel of oil so that consumers and families uh, just don't get hit in the pocketbook too hard. Yeah. How do we do those things and how fast can we do those things? Well, there's some things that the Biden administration could do tomorrow. Uh, they could make a call to the oil and gas companies in the United States to say, listen, uh, not too long ago, we were the number one uh, oil producer and the number one natural gas producer in the world. Let's get back to that. Let's produce more oil here at home. You know what? Irony is we're importing about $50 million a day worth of oil from Vladimir Putin now. If we're going to sanction Putin, that's one of that's one of the first things we would call on this administration to do, saying we are not going to import any more oil from Russia. It is uh, more environmentally uh, irresponsible than oil produced here at home. Uh, oil produced here in the United States is cleaner than Russian, so we could replace that $50 million with oil here produced here at home. We can expand that. We can meet all our energy needs with oil and natural gas produced here. We can even start exporting more oil to Europe to help Ukraine and the Europeans push back on Vladimir Putin as well. So there's a lot we can do. We can do onshore oil and natural gas production that is environmentally responsible. We can look at offshore. We can They could announce a lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico and existing areas where production's already occurring that would spur economic growth and spur oil and natural gas production. All that sends signals to the market that puts downward pressure immediately on the price of oil and therefore the price of gasoline and diesel. So every, 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 those are things that put, that the Biden administration could do tomorrow. OK, and everything that you've just ticked off, David, makes, uh, I think, an enormous amount of sense. So why aren't we doing it? Are we? We're not. And so far, this administration has just sent signals saying that they've done all they can, which is not true. They can do a lot here um, and they can do it in an, environmentally, an environmentally responsible way. Excuse me. There is no reason that we need to abdicate our advancements toward lower carbon uh, energy and uh, energy diversification. We just need to respond to the global oil crisis that is going to impact Americans here at home, and you're feeling it there in California right now, uh, and it's, it could only get worse. So if you remember back to 2008, right before the Great Recession started, we had $4.50 a gallon for gasoline as a national average. If we get there, the, the recession pressure, the economic pressure, the jobs pressure will start being felt 
all across the country. We really need to do something about it now. Well, in California, we're going to feel it even more than everybody else because we always do, right? We'll switch back to that summer blend at some point, and then uh, we keep going back and forth, and the prices here are always higher to begin with. They are. In California, a lot of times, as you guys know, are a forerunner for what happens in the rest of the country. Uh, and you're seeing and you're feeling it. Uh, that May time frame is when they do the summer blends. Uh, that traditionally has a little bit of a price spike as well. So we need to try to get ahead of this as best we can. Um, so far, we, we don't like what we're hearing out of the Biden administration because there's a lot they could do and a lot they could do tomorrow to, to both put pressure on Putin to help our friends in Ukraine, to help our friends in Europe, but more importantly, to focus on American families here at home and help lower these prices. Do you have a theory why they're not doing these things? Well, I think they're, um, you know, we've seen a lot of folks from the, the so-called environmental left that put this zero-sum game in play that says the only way we can achieve our carbon reduction goals is to stop using oil and natural gas. Uh, we don't agree with that. We think we can achieve our, our carbon reduction goals and continue to use oil and natural gas. And frankly, the reality is that we are going to continue to use oil and gas for a long time to come. There's just no way the economy can, can move off it for decades upon decades. It's not just not going to happen. Uh, so we need to look at uh, that third way, that compromise way that we're so good as Americans coming up with and looking at technology, looking at innovation, looking at ways that we can reduce our carbon emissions and meet our energy needs at the same time. And frankly, the United States is already showing we can do that. We're the leading nation in the world in carbon reductions already. So uh, we just continue that trend, start showing the rest of the, the, rest of the world how it's done. And uh, this is a global phenomenon, global climate change is a global phenomenon, so we need to spur other countries to do more on their on their on their on their part. Uh, but right now, we've got to look at this oil issue. We've got to look at the Ukrainian issue. We've got to look at this gasoline and diesel issue and do something about that here at home. David Holtz, President of the Consumer Energy Alliance, follows all the uh, prices out there. This has been a special edition of KNX in Depth. We'll be back tomorrow.